is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 107, The Fall of Centauri Prime. And as Stephen said, with a totally deadpan delivery, just another Babylon 5 title. That could mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a seasonal thing. Uh, the spring <laughs> of Centauri Prime Collection is actually kind of nice. Um, <laughs> the vests are a little is, more flowy, you know. This is fall and we saw some white. I'm not sure I agree with this. Uh, seriously, though. Um this is a pretty momentous episode, as you can tell by the title, so we thought we would bring in some help to discuss it. So welcome back, Lizbeth Miles. Hello. Liz, I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna throw you right into the fire here without getting too that spoilery. Was a season four that episode. Was, yeah. <laughs> you got there first. Oh, I'm so pleased that both of you just picked up on that. Thank you. Um, but w- without getting too spoilery or too in-depth, can you just tell us maybe a little bit about what you thought of season five when you first watched it? And has your opinion sort of changed at all since then? I like how you said too in-depth there, uh, due to my threats <laughs> of making this a significant monologue earlier before recording. I, I've um, podcasted with you before. <laughs> um yeah, okay, the first time I saw season five was, uh, I think it was 98 or 99 when it was out on VHS. And this was probably the first season of Babylon 5 I saw, um, <laughs> which obviously, there, there's some parts of the story that don't quite uh, hit you in the same way when you're doing it like that. But um, since then, obviously, I've watched it in order. And uh, yeah, I I think it kind of deserves its reputation as being... The second weakest one. No, well, not really, because I prefer season one overall, I think. But um, uh, it definitely suffers from a lack of uh, uh, story planning. The, the good stuff that was happening in seasons three and four, you can really feel that, that they're having to like, oh God, why do I feel this stuff up with things? And, um, you know, but I, d- I did enjoy it the first time I saw it. And I think, like with much of Babylon 5, as the years went on and I watched it excessively, um quite a lot of stuff ended up sticking out to me as being really um but you know some of the stuff really remains some of the stuff now i really appreciate uh i'm one of those terrible people who likes the telepath arc i think a lot of it is very silly especially their hair but i do enjoy it and my favorite episode of the season one of my five favorite Batman five episodes actually is phoenix rising i think it's great i always have fun watching it and uh, the the other thing that makes this season really worth watching just by itself is Londo and Jakar and the way we get this denouement in their relationship, which obviously reaches its culmination in, in this episode here. And it's really, I think, of all the things about Babylon 5 that you can, can criticise, this is the one thing that I really think by itself can make the series just worth watching, even if you just hate everything else. Londra and Jakar and the way that they develop throughout the series and the way they develop with each other is something that just, it's it's a thing for me that stands up in the storytelling and characterization just the most. It hasn't like taken a single hit over the years. It's still great. And I think, I think definitely that's something I appreciate even more now than I did when I, when I originally watched it. I don't want to, try to get into Peter Jurisic and Andreas Katsoulis' heads, but I can't imagine a more satisfying five-year partnership of actors mm-hmm. acting against each other. Yeah, 
It looks an awful lot of fun. Can I do a tiny little rant about the thing that really annoys me about season five? <laughs> as long as it doesn't uh, cover anything that happens in episodes to come, you may go no. for it. No, uh, this is the thing that makes me really angry that I really wish was a payoff for that they got, I don't know, some bad things happening to them for it. But my God, I hate what they do with Sheridan and that he... I don't care if it was justified or not. He was a, a military commander who nicked military equipment and started firing on his own people. Yes, for very good reasons, but he never paid for it. And I think if you're going to do that, even on principle, you should suffer the consequences of that. You've done, made the right moral decision, but still, bad stuff happens. And what happened was that his his buddies, his mates, his mates that loved him so much that they got their ships together to go and threaten Earth ships. Okay, they didn't actually fire on them, but the threat implied was still there. Appointed him, didn't elect him. There was no due process here. Gave him a job as president of the galaxy. And that was just like, what? And then we get the, the, the follow through here of like, this is a bloody oligarchy you people have made. It's like if you, the United Nations was given the most advanced... It was, it was like if the only nuclear weapons on Earth were controlled by the United Nations and the person who put them off was the Secretary General. I mean, how would other nations feel about that? Not too secure. And yet we're, we're that's, that's what's happening here. And it doesn't feel like they've got any sort of due process set up. They don't have a clear differentiation between the executive and the legislative. And where's the judiciary in all of this? You know, what are the limits of Sheridan's power? Can he be impeached? How long does his term of office last? You know, it's just like, this is, this is terrible. Which, if it was... If it was being as Babylon 5 as what it had been earlier, especially in season 4, I think they'd have lent into that. They'd have talked about how Sheridan is himself leaning into being part of an oligarchy. and But they don't. It's like, just because these are people whose hearts are in the right places, we're supposed to go along with it. And I'm like, very annoyed about it most of the time. So yeah, that's my problem with season 5. If we got comeuppance for it... I'd have been fine, or if we'd interrogated a bit, but we don't. Anyway, spin maybe on. we maybe we should have replaced the uh, the telepath arc with uh, with that some no. interstellar politics. <laughs> well, technically yes, but I want the telepaths. <laughs> I mean, that would have improved the quality, but it would have pandered less and just annoyed me less. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. but yeah so, that, that, so yeah, instead so. we need to expand season five to have telepaths and uh yeah. constitutional crisis yeah, you, you, you <laughs> cut, out, cut out some of the uh some of the chaff like uh, that absolutely bleeding wonderful episode uh a view from the gallery yeah <laughs> cut, cut that ah. nonsense and get something decent in there instead of self-congratulatory oh my god at least one of you loved this episode didn't you um nonsense <laughs> <laughs> and now that I've annoyed most of the listenership. <laughs> I think every opinion about Babylon 5 is guaranteed to annoy at least someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I did so already true. say I like the telepath. Not the singing, I should add. Not that bit. Oh, all right. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Whew. All right. On that, on that very relieving note, um, let's, uh, let's, let's do our little catch up here. Uh, what you need to know coming into this episode. Uh, the Interstellar Alliance is more allied than ever against the Centauri. Proof has surfaced that Centauri ships have been attacking the shipping lanes of all other member races. President Sheridan and Minbari Ambassador Delenn 
had promised to support any action the alliance wanted to take when the culprits were uncovered. So, of course, hundreds of ships head for Centauri Prime ready for battle. Unfortunately, there are mysterious forces at work on Centauri Prime, and they've forced the regent to send away all the ships protecting the planet and turn off the planetary defense grid. Also, Delenn and Lanier are drifting helpless in hyperspace in a disabled white star after a nasty encounter with some Centauri ships. And that brings us to the fall of Centauri Prime, in which Delenn and Lanier are rescued. Londo saves Jakar's life. The regent explains everything to Londo, finally, then dies. Londo has no choice but to take on a keeper and announce severely isolationist policies for his people. And Centauri Prime falls. That's it. So that's, sad. That, that's kind of a lot, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It's it's big stuff in a in a small package. Um, I I would like to start by talking about Centauri Prime and Londo in particular. We have seen him sort of dancing around the edges of the truth and not really being able to grasp it. And the regent has been sort of dangling weirdly phrased cryptic hints, but not actually telling Londo anything that's terribly useful until now, where it's sort of all the cards on the table and no choices. What did you think about about the way that the series sort of gave us the breadcrumbs, but didn't give us the, well, we kind of knew, but didn't give Londo the full picture until now? One of the things that has been a little frustrating about watching this run of five episodes is that I kept having it thrown in my face that what I know as a longtime fan of the show, I wouldn't have known in real time. Uh, we have known, and we've been talking about this in spoiler space all along, that it's the Drak who are behind this and all of the implications thereof and things like that. Um, this episode is kind of a... I don't want to say it's entirely an exposition dump because a lot of consequences sort of come home in this episode. But between the Regent and the Drak, played by Wayne Alexander... Uh, there's very little Lorian to uh, Wayne Alexander in this role. Um, they tell Londo what's been happening. They tell Londo what is to come. There's so much telling and explaining and then the consequences, uh, as opposed to in the previous episodes. You know, things have been building, 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 building. This episode seems to be more of a, and this is what this all means. And I found that a mild bit of a letdown, even as I was sort of amazed at what was happening to the characters, particularly Londo, and sort of seeing it all come home. Uh, the action of the episode uh, sort of left me a little flat. Yeah, I wouldn't say it left me flat, but there were definitely moments where I was feeling like, okay, hurry up, guys. We know this. You know, we, we, we get it um, in a few places. <laughs> As you said, mainly with the Drock and the Regent, laying it all out for Londo, just how trapped in a corner he is now, which as viewers, we sort of got the feeling that it was coming. And, you know, the, how much of that yeah. was how much of that was being a, a longtime fan who knew it as opposed to if you could put yourself into the mindset of a Stephen Shapansky, perhaps. <laughs> Honestly, the viewers, first time or not, I don't think needed quite that much explanation. Unfortunately, Londo did. 
So mm-hmm. we're, we're stuck along with mm-hmm. the ride. What did you think, Liz? Did it feel exposition dumpy? Oh, I feel weird. I feel so weird here. I, I, I have to disagree. And this is okay. the caveat that I often found. Well, thank you for coming, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> I, I often find Babylon 5 dialogue very clunky and exposition-y. And here is a thing where I guess I kind of see what, yeah, it, but I also don't mind. I really enjoy it. I think because um, I find what's been happening on Centauri Prime post-Katasia so creepy and mm. in quite an, and in like a horror film kind of way, like there's something there lurking, you don't know what it is and you can't stop it. And uh, given that I know what's coming here, it's that mounting tension like if you've seen the horror film before of of knowing it but it's it's still it still like makes me like tense up and because it's so slow because they're just letting it out a little bit and a little bit and it's going on and on and on that that to me just makes it it creepier it's sort of like the web tangling you up and it's more and more and more until like you're suffocating in it and uh i think i think the volume of exposition also emphasizes how much of what is going to happen to Londo and what's going to happen to his world is his fault. It all traces back to him in different ways. The, the one that really was like, Ugh, was when it's like, oh, they've put fusion bombs all across the planet. You know, like you blow up that island that one time. And it's just, it, that, yeah, it really creeps me out and it really frightens me even like watching it now. This is this is still for me that that whole arc bit there of the scariest part of Babylon 5. Yeah, I, I actually, I agree with you, Liz, but for slightly different reasons. Um, I think for me, it was important to get all of that exposition and, you know, because we have been following along with Londo all this time and watching him be just in the dark. And I think that, yes, from a from a sort of storytelling and directorial standpoint, you could have done the thing where Londo walks in and the regent starts explaining things to him. And then we cut to the future where everything has been explained and Londo's just, you know, white-faced and gobsmacked and, and oh no. And I feel like if that had been the case, I would have felt cheated because to me, it was really important to see Londo learning about mm. all of this stuff. And and because Liz, like you said, so much of that is, is attributable right back to him and where he started. And and more than anybody else in Babylon 5, I think Londo's arc is the most enjoyable and interesting to me um also the most tragic and and we wouldn't really i don't think i would feel like that arc had had truly sort of culminated in the way that it does in this episode without getting to watch him have that interaction with the regent and and the drock and learn all of those things and and i think his performance was fantastic and mm-hmm. and i would hate yeah. to have been uh have been cheated of that so i think i think shannon what what you said is 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 bang on like yeah we knew or or could at least have figured most of that stuff out but londo didn't and we had to just follow along with him and i think to be truly satisfied for me i did need to follow along with him as yeah. we learned and Plus we the didn't necessarily also good. have the and we nef- didn't necessarily have the all of the information that we needed to really emphasize the point that the bad guys on Centauri Prime are shadow servants. Um, mm-hmm. Where the remote controls came from, there was a little bit of wiggle room about that. We didn't really know until exposition time that these were the Drak, that they came from Zahadum, that they were specifically punishing Londo. 
um, that they were building a home place. You know, we did actually need all of that information. Mm -hmm. And Stephen uh, actually was he didn't really remember the Drock from that one time that we met them before. I had to really go into detail to sort of jog his memory about that part of it. Uh, so for him, I think that it was it was really helpful as well. And he actually he got a little bit not entirely frustrated, but he said that he enjoyed the episode, but he thinks he would have enjoyed it more if he wasn't straining to re so hard to remember the stuff that had happened. I mean, they threw in some some flashback moments and stuff, but it still wasn't quite enough to to give him all the pieces that he needed. So I think I think he'll like this episode a lot more once he gets to go through and rewatch it with with all the same knowledge that we have had <laughs> coming in. <laughs> So yeah, so now Centauri Prime is burning. And we've seen that before, except that not before. We saw it in the future and everything just gets very timey-wimey. But now now we know how that all got started. So you're the, saying uh, that we didn't start the fire. <laughs> it was always burning. <laughs> since, uh, I, I got nothing. Yeah. I, I can't. <laughs> you can expect that a lot's going to happen in however long the flash forward is, you know, it's it's ballpark 20 years, as as Londo said in the flashback. Yeah, long enough for Londo to get much more, you know, sort of old and wrinkly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. JMS wasn't actually making predictions about the nature of American and British politics and uh, <laughs> things like that at the time in the mid-90s. But oh, the boy. world of Centauri Prime, as described in Londo's address after the regent and the Drock explain to him what he's going to do and what impact that's going to have. And then as Sheridan and Delin and Jakar are witnessing that speech and, and Sheridan says, uh-oh, as Londo takes that isolationist and paranoid turn, you know, who would have thought that an autocratic leader setting his people on a path to you know, resentment and fear and isolationism and deliberately um, pissing off your. Oh, I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, deliberately yeah. upsetting yeah. your allies. <laughs> Make Centauri Prime great again mm. is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> wrong. Yeah. Oh. yeah. It's 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 almost like following those policies aren't actually meant to help the people you're ruling or whatever word we use for democracy. Um, they're they're meant to destroy them and make them more pliable. A population. It's, it's amazing that. It's, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I've just put my political cards very plainly on the table here, but this part of the episode was way more chilling to me now than it was in mm -hmm. the 90s. Alas. Mm. <sighs> Well, let's let's turn from that to something mm -hmm. uh, sad. <laughs> I was going to say sad in a different way. Uh, okay. I just I I really want to to highlight the sequence. We've the scene that we've already sort of mentioned between Londo and Jakar. I just the fact that all of this crap starts happening and what does Londo do? What is the first thing he does? He runs. He runs back to the prison mm -hmm. cell to get Jakar yeah, out of there yeah, and I, saves his life. This oh. is something I think is like necessary to contrast the last glimpses we're going to see of the Londo we have watched grow and change 
and become the man he's become. Because yes, like you said, he goes and gets Jakar out of the prison cell before he can be crushed to death by the bombardment. He goes back to get Jakar off the planet, basically saying like, you know, you, you can't be my bodyguard anymore. This is goodbye. We've got to pause this. And he does the same thing with Veer. He gets Veer out of there and to safety. So he like goes for the like two people, I think, that are left on this planet that he cares about and make sure that they are out of the line of fire for whatever is going to happen, whatever is going to come before the Drock condemn him to the Keeper. And just the, the contrast of his own body language, his own actions before and after, these scenes highlight that for me. Yeah, I, I think the it's really interesting especially in light of a vaguely similar thing in convictions when they were trapped in the lift together and kind of mm-hmm. you know quite keen on seeing one each other die and then here it's oh i'm putting my life at risk mm-hmm. to rescue you and i think it's just it's very satisfying babylon 5 does that a lot with the paralleling things from earlier to, to mm-hmm. highlight what's changed and i really enjoy that here but my favorite moment is when he's got car on the couch and he gets him a little <laughs> pillow for his head <laughs> I teared up at the sequence where, you know, Jakar was saying, you know, mm-hmm. my people can never forgive oh, your people for what they did. Oh. But I yeah. can forgive yeah. you. And I was I just s- like, <laughs> And that moment, that moment of just, you know, Peter Jurisic plays it perfectly. You know, uh, there's not a whole lot of dialogue in that moment. You know, he's just, he is mm-hmm. moved, but he's not sentimental about it. You know, he's just, you know, he's visibly moved. And compare and contrast of what happens after mm-hmm. the Keeper's on him. And when they yeah. see each other again in the palace. And that's just so painful. I think we alluded to it possibly in spoiler space last episode. But really, once the Regent and the Drock lay it all out there for Londo, Keeper or no, Londo's mm-hmm. out of choices. As they keep saying. He might as well have the Keeper on his shoulder. The Keeper is just, it's almost ornamentation. Mm-hmm. He has a duty He's He's got a duty to his people. He's got to accept this and, I guess, hope for something better in the long run, which, as we saw in the flash forward in War Without End, ultimately, Jakar's mm-hmm. going to kill him. Yeah, that's, and that's your happy ending. And ultimately, in the flash forward, Londo frees Delin and Sheridan to help his people. Londo doesn't know the future. All he knows is that He's going to die with Jakar's hands wrapped around his throat. But Londo made this decision because if he didn't, his people would have no hope. And 20 odd years from then, his people will have hope again. Feels, man. I got feels. <laughs> so many feels. Yeah. Although I will say in terms of the the sequence when they're when Lando and Jakar are saying goodbye to each other, you are you're right that it's not it's not overwritten. There's not too much sentimentality like in the dialogue or the performance. But I would argue that the music is a little too much. It it mm. really swells. It, it gave me that sort of soap opera like you're supposed to be sad now. And I was like, I'm already sad. <laughs> oh, that's another thing that generally speaking, I hate and can't stand. I'm completely fine with that moment because I agree with the music. And it's just, oh, another thing. It's just they do the hands of friendship at the end as well. Mm-hmm. The way they're holding it sort of. I'm just like, oh, oh, 
my gosh. <laughs> and it's just, it's, and, and that, it isn't their last interaction, but it's their last interaction as, as completely Londo and, and completely Jakar. And the, the, the other most heartbreaking thing about the episode is the contrast between the cold, hard Londo who's being seems to be being is I don't think that's the keeper controlling him. I think that's the keeper knowing telling him what to mm-hmm. do and him doing it in the most mm-hmm. horrible way that he can because these are the people he cares about. So he wants them to hate him so they stay away from right, him. Right. And that protects them. And that's right. just like, oh God. Yeah. yeah, the the scene with Veer, that that almost brought me to tears as well because, <gasps> you know, Veer busts in the way he normally does and Londo just flies off the handle and is so upset because, you know, it, t- they tell us that the keeper can't be seen unless it wants to be seen whatever but he you just know, got Lando this thing is afraid. he doesn't know <laughs> right yeah Londo's afraid that if if Veer sees the wrong thing then yeah maybe the Drock are gonna just chop his head off and you know it, he, I don't know what Londo's reaction to something like that would be like that just might just be too much for him he needs to save the few people he, he truly cares about and the way of doing that is scaring the poop out of Veer and yelling at him a lot mm-hmm. yep yeah it just hurts that much more because in the, like the previous episode he was just so proud and happy with them for taking mm-hmm. a sword to the dressing it's right. like, like what's happened 24 hours later it's yeah. all gone we get some interesting information about how keepers work and mm-hmm. in the in the regent's dialogue that the keepers don't 100% take control of you full time only when their interests are at stake and that's almost worse mm-hmm. because that means that londo's got to play the game and try to behave himself because if they notice he's resisting their interests will be at stake and then presumably he's going to lose his free will and that's awful for his sake you'd almost rather his uh you know he he's been mind wiped like we've seen uh the psychor do or something like that than another personality was in or something like that no he's he knows exactly what he's being made to do, and he's got freedom up until the point where it's useful to him. Mm-hmm. He ha- he's forced to be actively complicit. Ouch. Yeah. <sighs> well, let's turn our eyes to the to the sky a little bit from Centauri Prime. Sheridan shows up only to learn that the defense grid has been turned off and all of the ships are gone and civilian targets are being targeted and bombed and it's terrible and awful and then he gets reminded hey you said we could do whatever we want (laughs) and of course he didn't agree to hitting civilian targets but you said anything just you Mm -hmm. know technicalities there and of course the centauri ships are going to be returning fairly soon and they're not going to care which side you're on. They're just going to see their planet is being bombed to hell and back. And uh, so what are you going to do? Are you going to fight with us or are you just going to die quietly? What a choice. There are, again, no choices. What do, you, what do you think about his decision, even though it doesn't come to it, to actually just, just sit back and, and not engage with the Centauri fleet when it returns? I think this is the inexperience of the politician showing a great, great, great big deal. Because Sheridan did not see this coming. He did not plan for, you know, the possibility of them turning around and attacking Centauri Prime. And he genuinely, I think, he genuinely doesn't know what to do. So the only thing he can do is stall. Is stall Mm -hmm. stall for time and see what happens. It's almost like he's unqualified to be president of an interstellar alliance. And he's been been having to deal with political situations long enough that it, 
he's it's taking him a while to find his military smarts again. That's yeah. that's a very Watsonian take. Bringing Doyle in, uh, I think that this is a consequence of this being Londo's story and not Sheridan's story, mm-hmm. at least as mm-hmm. far as this episode is concerned. Uh, we talked last time about how, you know, it didn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to me, but it was fun seeing Sheridan be President Jetpack at the helm of the White Star Fleet. <laughs> and then he finally arrives and he just can't be Sheridan anymore, you know, because ultimately it serves the script for Londo to be the one to have to make the choices. And, you know, they even telegraph way, way early in the episode that Londo's going to have the fleet stand down. So there's a little bit of missing jeopardy there, but that leaves uh, Sheridan as a witness to bad stuff that's happening instead of an actor. Yeah. I still think you could have had Londo do his bit of choices of actually ending it, but still had actually the Centauri ships get there. And again, that's something that I'd have loved to, that he's, he's got to make a decision that either side has pretty negative consequences. So I, I would kind of love to see the fallout of him just sitting there as the Centauri ships start killing the Drazi and the Norn and seeing what happens at the next council meeting and uh, mm. <laughs> how he talks about that. To them, but we've only got like, what, go well. we've only got like four episodes left of the series. But I think one of them should have been that council meeting. You've got would... this thing for council meetings in television. I'm so, what, I'm saying. What can I say? I like stuff that that deals with like space law, space diplomacy. That's, I'd be very happy with an, a quite an rate belligerent council meeting happening that for a whole episode. I'd be killed with that. That's fine. You go ahead. Coming to just, big, just... big finish in 2019, star bureaucrats. <laughs> I'd be very happy with that. Just have Sheridan have suffer some lasting consequences for his decisions. It's what I want. It's all I want. It, it, he actually has another choice as well, which he is sort of given a little later to just leave and go look for Delenn and Lanier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> unqualified to be president of space uh but he does he 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 actually he's he's qualified enough to know that that is not the right choice and he he decides no no we won't go and and search for my my lover we will we will stay here yeah that would that would be very uncharacteristic for for him i think as a character to to just run off to look for his wife but but yeah there are there are no good choices there are there are many choices and they are all bad. Yeah. So don't cop out of it. Get those consequences happening. Even if you can only show a little bit of the fallout, you know, you can just assume that the Norn and the Drazi start sending assassins after him and stuff. <laughs> I, I am completely on side with that Norn uh, general, by the way. I know, obviously, I don't support shooting civilian targets because that's terrorism. But he sounds, he just sounds really frustrated and annoyed in a very annoying, patronizing way. But he's still like, well, you said we should do this, and we're like finishing the war here pretty quickly. And uh, you know, these people were pirating and attacking, murdering our civilians. So you know, and Sheridan is just like, I think you should stand back and do nothing for a bit longer. And I, I can understand why you might be a bit frustrated about that when someone's like been killing a bunch of your people for a while and secretly. So true. I'd give him a promotion. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and also try him for war crimes. <laughs> yeah oh well, actually it's fine though because that's what we've learned happens for for people like you know sheridan committed a war crime by using those telepaths as weapons so and then he got promotion so the same should happen for that northern ambassador ambassador general just to you know keep things equilibrium 
There you go. I love it. Um, so so while Sheridan doesn't wander off to to look for Delenn, she and Lanier are are sitting and waiting for the well, first they're waiting for the um their air to run out, their life support. Uh then they're also waiting for the last of their thrusters to be able to fire to keep them on the hyperspace beacon. So pretty much they're just SOL until for some reason at the very last second, Lanier points out there's another choice. I'm not entirely sure why he didn't point that out earlier. Maybe just because it's another really bad choice. Uh, but they could fire fire their weapons, which would bump them off the beacon, but at least tell others that they are there. It's sort of a and, last ditch thing until yeah. they run, yeah. out, run out of everything else, you know. Yeah, because not yeah. only is it going to bump them off the beacon, but, it, you know, as it points out, we might attract the wrong attention. You know, there's like a, you right. know, that's, that's two strikes against it as, yeah. as an idea. Which is why he- I just don't know why he doesn't tell her about it sooner. Not like they should have instituted it or implemented it sooner. But I, I guess I guess I, he had other things on his mind. Apparently. Apparently. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we totally got a Han Solo moment. Um, what <laughs> what was the uh, what was the reaction in the room to to that? I had forgotten about that little last ditch confession and. So part of me is going like, Lanier, don't say it, Lanier, don't say it, Lanier, don't say it, but Delin's I know, and then for her to turn around and try her best to friend zone him as gently as she can, just basically had me squirming all the way through, because there's just no really good resolution to it, as long as Lanier feels like he feels. Right. I mean, she has to do it because Minbari do what they have to do to help each other save face. Mm-hmm. And that's oh, yeah. the structure. You know, she she wasn't going to do anything different. But yeah, awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Steven didn't particularly like th- the way the rest of that scene played out. He really wished that it had just just ended with, you know, Lanier says, I love you. Delenn says, says, I know. And and then they just drop it and forget about it. But th- as I pointed out to him, you know, the Minbari don't generally lie unless it's to help somebody else save face. So that's exactly what she turns around and does. But I do think he has a point like it did kind of go on. She really spends a mm-hmm. lot of time reassuring him and saying how honored she is and and mm-hmm. all of that, which just yeah, it just felt more and more awkward the longer it went. Yeah, And I don't know if that was deliberate on JMS's part or not to have her essentially like you said overreact you know she she's trying you know so hard to let him down gently that it's making things worse so mm. i i i like to assume it's it's deliberate because yeah. that makes it, it that in that sense it makes it feel more real mm-hmm. and we should be feeling awkward and squirmy mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's how that sort of situation would especially when you're the one trying to make it better and smooth things over you don't shut up because you're like have i made it better maybe if i use more words <laughs> that will help more uh-huh. kind of yeah. thing um although i i still find it weird that she just assumes that it's a declaration of romantic love when it could be like you know i love you as my magical savior figure that i sort of worship but from a distance kind of thing you know it could be more in the sort of um knight and lady romantic tradition rather than romance tradition does that make sense um, yeah but he's already he's already he's already danced up to this line at least once before uh, mm-hmm. With that uh, ductwork conversation and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's given her more than enough. Yeah, I think I she think knows. if she wanted him, if she wanted him, wanted to save face there, I'd have just gone for love you too, Lanier, best mates. Let's go for a beer, shall we? Except that would then send them both into murderous rage. So maybe not that. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, that's true. Beer would be a very, very bad idea. Uh, I just, I just think that she, she knows, and she hasn't really known how to deal with it. Besides, sort of pretending it's not there, and suddenly it's out in the open, and she can't really pretend that she thinks it's anything else um, because she knows. So she just goes for the, she goes for the thing that honestly, to me, does seem like the most Delenn thing to do mm-hmm. to try to help him save face and to express how much she really does care for him uh just just not in that way and and like you said liz just sort of overdoes it you know i've i've, I've been in that situation it is an uncomfortable situation to be in and yeah like you just you just want it to to stop and be all better and if you just keep adding you know maybe you'll eventually hit you'll hit that magic phrase that does make yes. everything okay it doesn't work that way <laughs> yeah, i'm sure it does mm-hmm. yeah yeah if only <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Right. Are we done being awkward? <laughs> For now. You never know. For now. Anything else in this in this episode that really caught you guys? Like like I said, this is big stuff happening. A lot happens, but it's it's pretty contained to a few distinct plot lines. We're not all over the place. We're not on Babylon Five. Uh, it's it's really just this stuff. There, I like I like a lot of the horrible ironies in the episode. That's what really mm-hmm. makes it work for me. I mean, this is definitely. I mean, this is. I think this is the best episode of season five. This is mm-hmm. is not my favorite, but I do think it's the best one. The the emotional and plot fallout that you know this is kind of the pinnacle of building the five years, the payoff, and and this is it's got, this is one that's got all the payoffs that I feel really are completely and utterly unapologetically worthy of that five-year build-up. It's so satisfying to to see the Londo and Jakar conclusion stuff here. Um, but yeah, horrible ironies. And one of one of my favourites, which is a fairly little one, is that Londo asks at one point the Drach, what do you want? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. I remember that one. <laughs> oh, I missed that, but you're right. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I also like how TNT had shown in the beginning by now. And so we see, you know, mm-hmm. 20... 20 years on that, you know, Londo has indeed boarded up um, just about every window in the palace except for one. Uh, That's right. Things like that. So, yeah, uh, Veer's little throwaway line um, resonated with me. I really liked the fact that the regent was given, you know, even though, yes, it was a lot of exposition, but he was the actor was given a kind of a nice send off. You know, to 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 say, you know, I I have done the best that I could given what has happened to me. I am not afraid of death. I am Centauri. That part of of his speechifying did affect me because I felt like the character was given a due that um, in the hands of another writer, they might not have taken the time uh, for something like that. Hmm. Could he have just consistently pronounced the word Centauri, though? Just once. <laughs> yeah. well. No, that's that's like accents. That's like your 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 dialect switching. And he's he's probably from like quite a poor or or middle class bit of Centauri, mm. and he's ended up in the royal court. And it's like when he was there, he pronounced it one way. Royal court supposed to pronounce it another, and yet he. But he's like confused and afraid, so he's not sticking in the right. This is the same dialect all the time. That's how I read it. It makes so much sense. I thoroughly accept that headcanon. <laughs> I am on board. He's too stressed for RP, is that what you're saying? 
Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's one of those little things. It's it, it happens in a lot of shows, you know, different actors pronounce the alien or the sci-fi or fantasy words different ways. Gallifrey, and Gallifrey. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about Met- Metabilis or whatever it was. That doesn't count. But every other time, <laughs> that was the one that proves the rule. Every other time, I do like to use a headcanon of they're just from a different place. They pronounce it differently, just like in the real world. It's not a mistake. It adds to the, the texture of the world that we are in. Uh, something else I appreciated was the debriefing among the command staff back on Babylon 5 as they're looking over this shadow tech and realizing that at the moment the current live flash shoot war is over, but you know th- there is so much more to deal with and they don't have enough information to know where to go next. Um, and then, you know, Zach coming in and saying like, hey, I mean, you know, the station's calmed down, everything's done. And Sheridan's just like, no, it's not. There's so yeah. much more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, this episode really brings home that the character with the most powerful story arc in all five years is Londo Malari. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't quite say that Babylon 5 is the story of Londo, I mean, this, there's still a lot of, you know, basic great man uh, mythology going on, you know, following Sheridan through uh, four of the five years and things like that. But JMS knew what he was going to do to Londo right from the beginning. And that mm. beautiful montage mm-hmm. towards the end of the episode with him falling all over himself in the first season at the uh, religious festival and in bed with Adira and then making his deals with Morden. No other character on this show has changed so much, even more so than the existence of a five-year story arc for this show. The five-year story arc for that character and for it to go so seamlessly— Look at mm. all the look at all the Londos that we have seen over the years. Look at the Londo at the end of season two when he's announcing the war between the Narn and the Centauri, and then hitting the Narn for reparations. You know, the wheel turns, does it not, Ambassador? Because it turns right back on him and his people in this episode. Mm-hmm. What happens to Londo in over the course of these five years is masterful. Uh, one other thing that we haven't mentioned about this episode, possibly the creepiest moment of the entire series for me. Um, and I felt it way back then when we first saw this 20 years ago. I still feel it now. The scene when Londo has to accept the Keeper and when he and the Drock both disrobe in mm-hmm. order for this to happen is yep. just creepy as hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have an embarrassing admission that I was debating, do I want to say this and share this or not? Did I just open the door for you? Go for it. Yes, do it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, God. This is, this is slightly embarrassing. Okay. So, Londo, you know, great character. As as he said, wonderful. You, I think he's the one aspect that you never feel that Straczynski's having to, like, improvise around with the various limitations he had over the years. There weren't any surprises for him there. He'd had it all planned out. Um, and I very much enjoy him in many different ways. But Londo is never attractive to me mm-hmm. until that scene when he takes off the coat and stuff and he's <laughs> sitting there, standing there in his black shirt and trousers and boots and just looking so implacable and brave and determined and I will see this through with dignity. And then suddenly I'm like, ah, all right. <laughs> 
That is possibly the best thing I've heard on this podcast ever. <laughs> oh, God. I'm slightly, that slightly is delightful. But red. you know what? I, I, I totally get it. I mean, I, yeah, I, see I wouldn't say I had from. that same feeling in that moment, but thinking about it now, yeah, I can, I can totally see that. It is that, <laughs> okay. it is that last great moment of dignity for him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's going he's yeah, to go it's out strong. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. Well, I've got a question for you, Erica. Mm-hmm. Did Stephen find him hot? <laughs> <laughs> if he did, he didn't mention it. So I, I don't know. Oh. I, I think he found the um. I, I, I think he found the the peeling off of the keeper to be pretty gross. Yeah. Uh, I think we both made some some ew sort of noises there. That was that was one way to go with it. Actually, I thought that was really cool. That was a very mm-hmm. kind of neat alien science fiction-y mm, yeah. thing. Not only are these keepers uh, weird tentacled little things, but they are actually literally a, a part of or grown on or yeah. a, a parasite or sim- symbiote of the Drock themselves. Like, that's that's a cool concept. Yeah, it's when, just the, the... when the Drock started, like, you know, reaching and pulling on his chest and it's like, and I went to the giving birth metaphor and I just like shuddered yeah. because like, oh my God, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was. And then there's like strings of yeah. sticky stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was th- well done in a very disgusting way. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, let's, let's stop talking about that thing. And uh, <laughs> so one other thing that I, that I noticed actually in the scene that you were talking about um, on Babylon 5 when they're doing the de- debrief about the, the pods and, and all that stuff and the shadow tech, there was, there was one little moment in there that I don't remember noticing before. And it's when Lita sort of, you know, spouts something that she doesn't realize she's mm-hmm. about to say and doesn't know where it comes from. And she's talking about, no, 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 you can't go to the Vorlon homeworld until you've earned it a million years from now. And I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, yeah. And I, f- yeah. I forgot. I was going to point that out to Steven after we were done watching it and be like, remember the episode that you hated so much? This I think is, that's what yeah. they were referring to. Yep. Wait, which one did he hate? De- Deconstruction just, just, of Falling Stars. I- yes. <gasps> I love you, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't like that at all. But I, I do believe that, uh, that, you know, in the Deconstruction of Falling Stars, we know it's a million years in the future and we know humans are, are leaving Earth and going somewhere else. Well, it looks like maybe they're going to the Forlorn yeah. homeworld. Hey, don't forget, Jason Ironheart said so as well. Her. A million years ah. from now. Oh, yes. <laughs> I win this round. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, so there's there's the, the continuity in this show just warms the cockles of my fangirl heart, even if it's from an episode that some people don't like. It's still <laughs> continuity. two episodes that some people don't like. <laughs> Although I liked Jason by heart. Oh, you, who doesn't like mine for? I think some people don't. I'm not one of yeah, those people. Those... I liked it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking poorly of those people, <laughs> because obviously I like to judge people based on, on their television opinions. <laughs> you wouldn't be on a podcast if you didn't. <laughs> oh, man. No, I'm, well I'm very, very forgiving of season one, generally, but I actually think my door is quite good. Yeah, well, uh, any any last last things before we assign homework? And did such? we get a proper Stephen check-in? We did not. Let's do that. Um, actually, when the the most effusive moment he had was at the very, very beginning where we had the previously on Babylon 5. 
he was so excited. He was like, oh, we never have this. This is awesome. I think all of the episodes should have this, uh, <laughs> in part because we watch it every other week. I think he has often struggled to keep track of what has what has gone before. So he enjoyed that little little departure from, from the huge. He, at the end, when you have the shot of uh, of Londo just sitting there, just by himself, Stephen just goes, a lonely emperor. Well, him and his little friend, and then points to his neck. It's just like, <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> oh, but, but yeah, he oh. he liked the episode. He thought it was good, uh, apart from the bits that he didn't remember and that I had to sort of remind him of. Um, he also really loved the, the scene between Jakar and Londo. He just thought that was very, very, very good. And I already mentioned how he felt about the, the Han Solo scene. Um, he just, he, he wished it would have been more open-ended, but... We talked about that, and he even he even thought toward the end when uh, when Londo was was getting the uh, the keeper for a second he was he had hope that Londo had actually resisted the brain slug as he as he put it. Oh no! And, but no, nope. <laughs> then his hope was dashed. So it was even sadder for Stephen um, to to oh have to see that. That and then, makes me so sad. I know, right? But but it is nice to see to see Stephen really really enjoying Babylon Five so much. He's he has been quite quite on board with the last few episodes so that's been great good timing yeah yeah mm-hmm. they're all right i actually watched a good chunk before that because i was like oh i better get this in context forgetting that i'd in fact watched this show dozens and dozens of times and actually remembered everything that happened <laughs> and all of them but man it was so it was so good mm-hmm. that i know this is random but one of my favorite things about it that doesn't to me i don't think it's aged at all comparing it with like doctor who or the modern star trek is the design and the makeup done on the aliens. Yep. It stands up so freaking well. Those those the, the, the everything they did about them. It looks so good. And that's not just for the time, that's for now as well. Yeah. I say having very closely inspected the Andorians in Star Trek Discover. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, if you go back to season 1, it gets a little bit sketchier, but they tighten things up when they when uh, with more practice. And yeah, by the time season five rolls around, I would I would very much put, you know, Londo or Jakar next to next to anybody on any modern show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I was admiring the Drac, not the Drac, um, the Drazi a lot. Yeah. I think I think they're fantastically done. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I do enjoy how uh, Straczynski was very keen on not just having funny wrinkled noses on any of his aliens. They're all like, okay, they've got two arms and legs, but they're fairly proper aliens, all of them. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that. Sorry, Star Trek, I love you, not UTNG. Bless his heart, though. You know, at least he he realized that there were limitations with Negrath. Yeah, that's true. Oh, I... I, You see, I love the ambition of that. Yeah, the ambition of it's great, but needed needed a little more technology. Yeah. Bless them. I oh no, that I, I'm completely, completely on board with what we got on the ground. Because <laughs> I, I think, I think, I think being very much enjoying, you know, sexy Doctor Who and what they had to do. I, I really appreciate a TV show of the '90s that's willing to take those chances, but they're obviously going way beyond what they're convincingly capable of. So very true. I, 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 I appreciate the um, shuts pa. Is that the word? That's a word. All right. Well, speaking of your love for Doctor Who, Liz, uh, where else can we find you on the internet? Tell the people before we jump. Uh, you, if if I've not horrendously offended you with my 
opinions about <laughs> Bubble on Five. Um, you can find me on Twitter at LM Miles with a Y. Um, my blog, which is very sporadically updated at www.lmmiles.com. Uh, and I'm currently regularly on Verity. I don't know if the people, good people here have ever mentioned that before. <laughs> and uh, another podcast, uh, the Hammer House of Podcasts, where we discuss, where, sorry, myself and Paul Cornell discuss all of the Hammer movies in order from Quatermass through to To the Devil a Daughter. Look at me remembering that, which is a lot of fun and great. And uh, yeah, those are the places. God, I should really have that down at some point instead (laughs) of just rambling. It is a very good podcast, I recommend. Yep. Thank you. We appreciate that. It is now time to assign homework for the listeners. So for next time, please watch Wheel of Fire. And until then, do pop by b5audioguide.com, where our spoiler-friendly and spoiler-free chat threads are just waiting for your intelligent and insightful comments. Or you can come and say hello on Twitter and Tumblr, at b5audioguide. Now, if you want to avoid spoilers for the last handful of episodes of Babylon 5, please leave the planet immediately because it may not be safe for you here. Uh, (laughs) Mostly because we're about to jump into spoiler space. Okay, so there's not a lot left, uh, but uh, let's let's briefly discuss what's what's to come. I, 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 um, I I've actually I could actually monologue a fair bit. I'll try to rein it in, but uh, there's a lot of Drock <laughs> stuff uh, that we could talk about. Yeah. That is basically mm-hmm. me sort of spinning <clears throat> forth some of the stuff from the Centauri Prime books and Crusade. Oh. May I? Yeah, well, and well, I think, it, well, before you start doing that, I mean, that's, I think the whole point of um, Dr. Franklin's monologue at the end is just sort of laying out um, the basics of what we're going to be seeing uh, the um, Earth dealing with, with Crusade. Absolutely. Um, Crusade, mm-hmm. of course, uh, starts off with the Drock uh, attempting to uh, attack the Earth, and when their invasion attempt uh, or attack fails, they uh, drop the plague. And at least the first bit of Crusade would have been stop the Drock plague. Uh, later on, it's still a little unclear, but later along, later on, the story would have shifted to elements of EarthGov using shadow technology and things like that. So a lot of this stuff um, that is being set a lot of this stuff is set up for the series that we wind up not getting. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I think it still works. I, I, this, this episode works just beautifully mm-hmm. well on its own, but there is a lot of uh, groundwork that's being laid. Uh, as you said, the story of the Drock and of Centauri prime is, told in the three book series uh by the author peter david under jms's outlines uh uh called the the fall of centauri prime trilogy and we find out a lot more about how much it sucks being londo um poor great so so (laughs) this will put a little bit of a different spin on what you saw in this episode um in in, in this episode as far as how long how long does doing and stuff but as as the regent says in this episode the keeper isn't in charge 100 percent of the time only the times when it matters so for the next 20 years or so londo and it's going to take londo 20 years 
Londo does everything he can to try to undermine the Drock without being noticed. And it turns out that there's not so much that he can do. You know, uh, it's established in War Without End that uh, alcohol makes the Keeper go to sleep. And we're going to see yep. in, in just a couple of episodes when Londo appears for the last time, when he gives Sheridan and Delenn the ceremonial urn that has a Keeper in it, and the Drock is feeling magnanimous and allows him to have some alcohol and be free for an hour, you know, stuff like that. So Londo is going to take the next 20 years trying to undermine the Drock in his own poor, pitiful way. And when the Drock notice him even slightly resisting, the Keeper puts him through unimaginable pain. Pants soiling, dignity eliminating, Oof. huddling on the floor, pain. Or as punishment, they make him sit on his throne, literally unable to move. And, you know, we'll let you move in about 24 hours or something like that. You know, what life is like under under uh, the keeper's tentacled thumb is really, really awful. And it's almost a blessing that we don't get to see that in the show. I think the one of the wonderful things is this is kind of we, we I think there's enough to, like, let your imagination kind of fill in a lot of the blanks and delightful and charming ways and we have enough glimpses of the future and enough bookends in the show to at least have the feeling that maybe it won't be so bad in the end i mean much as i love deconstruction of falling stars it does at least show that you know we get through these things we survive mm -hmm. and uh i i really like in sleeping in light just that seeing veer fairly happy having a romp on Centauri Prime as Emperor before he comes, you know, that's that's enough to tell us that actually after Long John Jakar strangle each other to death. Char I, God, I yeah. love that. I mean, it sounds horrible, <laughs> but what a great yeah. ending. Um, that things actually are looking pretty upbeat on Centauri Prime. So I feel like we get enough things to fill in the story. And I think the Centauri books, books are, are, are pretty decent. Um, but but you, like if you just watch a television show, there's there's I find there's enough to satisfy you as well. Mm-hmm. Which I really, you know, and which given given that we've just given the, the start and end of some of these threads is really nice. I also very much appreciate that we have all these threads here. Like I really, I remember being so surprised when Londo showed up in that later episode with the with the art because you know I, it's such a conclusion here. Um, and that's that was that was unspoiled for me. One of the few unspoiled things I got in Babylon Five <laughs> because here it really feels like the end. So it was like, oh my goodness, what's he doing? What's this thing? And uh, even though it is, you know, it's a complete show, it's a satisfying ending, there's still enough threads that it doesn't, it's not a pat ending. There's no pat thing. There's all these different trails that go off in different directions to different stories. These people are going on and continuing to live their lives. And I, I, I find that as well just a part of the satisfaction for the ending that, that we don't get everything neatly wrapped up. Yeah. But we get enough to satisfy yeah. us. Uh, the Centauri Prime novels will include things like Veer gradually over the course of the years figuring out more what's going on and trying to resist what's hap what's happening on centauri prime from babylon 5 and elsewhere the novels do take a look at what happened to david sheridan uh when the urn was opened and i can't remember exactly how it was resolved but as we know from sleeping in light if he if he did get a keeper on him they figured out how to take it off of him because he's off doing ranger training when sheridan's time is up so if you can grab those novels it's I agree with you, Liz. They're pretty good, and uh, they do fill in many of the years between this story and Sleeping in Light. Carefully 
dancing around anything that might have been revealed in Crusade. Just things got better. <laughs> but I agree with you, Liz, that we've gotten we've got enough information in this story that in, in the stories that we got on television that we don't need more. Mm-hmm. Although I would have liked a spinoff that was Virkoto Resistance. <laughs> that, that, right? that would be one that I'd be very for. That'd been fun. <laughs> Yeah, um, I and I, as I recall, you know, I haven't reread the whole thing, um, but as I recall, uh, it's uh, Veer's arc in those novels is a good one, and uh, yeah, I would like to see. I've seen that, but in, in print, it's not bad at all. And uh, coming up in a in a little while, I think I'll have the bandwidth to edit it. Um, we'll have selections from a panel that Erica and I did at the Long Island Who convention in November 2017 with author Peter David, uh, and he talked about the episodes Ooh. of Babylon 5 and Crusade that he wrote, as well as the, these very novels. Ooh, yes. that's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Def- definitely do that. Find your bandwidth. <laughs> People send chip bandwidth. That's that's what we need. Uh, the, the other thing that stood out to me, and I know we've talked a lot about Lanier and spoiler space, uh, but this, this episode had, uh, I feel like, a big big moment in terms of Lanier's forthcoming decision making. However, I didn't necessarily feel like this moment was um, lent itself to him making the bad decision that he's going to uh, had had the Len in the last moments of, of what they thought was going to be their lives. Had she responded, I love you too, and then backpedaled, then yeah, I could totally see him uh, sort of... Uh, doing anything he can to to sort of win her over but the fact that her only response is i know and then uh pretending she didn't hear it um i don't know is this does it just drive him to more desperation or did did that not even sort of uh, make a difference to you guys i'm not sure i i don't know if lanier just if it solidified for him the fact that she had made her decision. She, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was in love with Sheridan and she married him. If it just sort of solidified for him that Sheridan is like the obstacle that if 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 he is gone, that because she cared enough to try and be nice about it, to try and help him save face may have been a tipping point. Although, you know, as we said, overall, I think based on what we remember of the upcoming episodes, it's the kind of decision that you only make in that split second one minute before one minute after he wouldn't have done it but i i think it's sort of for jms at least i think it's continuing to like you know lay this foundation as to why lanier would do something like this when they are debriefing what happened after lanier makes his decision tries to unmake it and then runs away delin and sheridan both are like well we always knew but and then Delenn says, yeah, but I didn't know how bad once she gets into his journals and all that stuff. So this feels like more of a, a continuation of everything that's been coming before. And it doesn't feel like a particular turning point to me. Uh, and maybe it should have to make Lanier's actions feel a little more plausible. Liz, what do you think about the whole Lanier thing? I think that was a jerk-ass writing move. Uh, my goodness, that lovely character with all his principles and stuff that we've enjoyed many a jolly joke with and and exciting times through the years. And you decide, oh, I've got a great plan to get together with the woman I love. I'll space her husband. It's just like, I, I don't think Lydia is... That 
why, why would he be so silly? I mean, you know, maybe, oh, he's in love. That's most people who are in love with people don't space their partner or attempt to space their partner because they feel so sad about it. It just seems ridiculous. Um, sorry. Now, I think there's, <laughs> I, I think that's one thing about JMS's writing over the entire series, the entire arc. I, I don't think he can have a 100% uncomplicated character. You know, I mean, he's got the talent to write rich characters and interesting characters. And I feel like Lanier would have been an interesting and charming character without this. But whether it was because he just couldn't see a character like Lanier staying as solid and good. Like, like, yeah, there, there's like there's no 100 percent good characters for JMS. Like there's no no 100 percent bad characters for the most part. Um, you know, Drock, aliens accepted. Um, so I think that's part of, you know, JMS's own need to make characters <laughs> that, that there's got to be some things about them that are ma- to make for him to make it more interesting, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure. That was, makes sense. Yeah, I'm not sure it was necessary, of course. Uh, I think Lanier would have been without this arc. He would have been a lovely, fascinating character. And even having him fall in love with Delenn, you know, that part is not bad in and of itself. It is a logical development in his character. But it seemed to work pretty well uh, story-wise back in season three when he's confessing to Marcus and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then yeah. for whatever reason, having this impulse to, you know, Lanier has this sudden impulse. He, he falls for it. JMS, you know, tries to balance it by, you know, he changes his mind and tries to go back only to find that, you know, Sheridan has managed to rescue himself. But yeah, um, not, that makes not sense. sure it's necessary. I think that's sort of writer succumbing to temptation. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I think that makes sense. And I think the way I found it convincing is, yeah, I get that. He's obviously jealous, but have him act in that jealousy in ways that aren't attempted murder. You know, you can have, you can be very, very poisonous and vicious without it just being a split second, one moment that, that's then regret, you know, have, have him undermining Sheridan in some way over the course of a few episodes, then he gets caught and he's, he's disgraced. But it's just, it's just this, this sudden snapping thing. I guess it, people must do it, but I, I, yeah, I just find it unsatisfying. Although I think that's an excellent point that it's, it feels like Jemis needed to have some sort of complications for him. But that, that, yeah, that makes it slightly less annoying to me now. <laughs> well, hooray. I'm glad we could dial down the annoyance level a little bit. <laughs> Anything else looking forward about what's to come? I'm really glad that Jakar and Londo had this scene because mm-hmm. Jakar is about to take off. <laughs> the the continued diaspora of Babylon 5 characters uh, away into... Uh, their future status quos is, uh, you know, it, it's 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 a coming, it's a coming, mm-hmm. and it, you're right. It is such a wonderful surprise when Londo shows up at the end of the series, bar the epilogue. But uh, but yeah, this is this is essentially Londo's farewell. Farewell, Londo, and uh, farewell to us because because uh, I think it's time to be going. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, Liz, for joining us on the podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks when Shannon sings Ring of Fire. I mean, discusses Wheel of Fire. (laughs) I ain't singing. (laughs) So until then, this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. 